The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. And if you would uh, make sure you have your Bibles open and uh, to Mark chapter number 11. Mark chapter number 11. And um, if you, you know, if you have one of these things in your Bible, you know, one of these, uh, whatever, markers thing, you want to also uh, get to uh, Isaiah 56, Isaiah 56. So uh, we'll be in Mark 11 and then a little bit in Isaiah 56 and uh, Mark 2, and we're just going to have a really good time together this morning Um, in God's Word. It's good to see so many people out this morning and uh, such an encouragement uh, to my heart. Um, uh, prior to the service, I was over there talking to Allison and I was bemoaning some things that happened earlier this morning. And then I got some art. I got some art from, uh, from the Sillies. That's how they identify themselves. Kenny and Jubilee provided me some art. So great. And you know, you can't be sad when you got green man and ice cream and well, African-American boy and orange wheels and all that kind of good stuff. So there you go. Um, be happy. Did you get art this morning? No? Well, you know, it's not too late. Do you have your Bibles? Are they open? Are we ready to go? Is there a balm in Gilead? Did the physician come? He did. He did. Well, we're going to be looking at, uh, Mark 11, starting with verse 12, and then all the way to the end of the chapter. But to understand what is going on, I actually want to deal with the latter part of the chapter first. So let me just read what kind of is the primary text, beginning in verse 27. So Jesus and his disciples are moving in and out of Jerusalem, uh, and they come, and he's walking in the temple, The chief priests and the scribes and the elders come to him and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things or who has given you the authority to do them? Now by these things, um, it includes what we haven't read yet, that's further up in the chapter, and that is the cleansing of the temple, the driving out of the money changers. And so the scribes and elders, the chief priests are like, why are you doing this? And in verse number 29, Jesus then says to them, well, I'm going to ask you a question. Answer me. And then I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing what I'm doing. And here's his question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it one with another saying, well, you know, if we say from heaven, then he's going to say to us, why didn't you believe him? But if we shall say, well, it's from man, and then Mark makes this editorial comment, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was really a prophet. And so what do they do? They answer, well, we don't know. We don't know. It's never a good thing to lie in church. Never a good thing. Well, then Jesus said to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. As I pointed out last week, the 
first 10 chapters of Mark's gospel cover three years in the life of Jesus. The final six chapters cover just one week in the life of Jesus. The material that Mark presents uh, in this one week, we usually uh, spend time talking about that during Holy Week, right? So Monday through Friday, we have these meetings every year. We've been doing this for a long time now. But when we do that, we are dealing with a compressed amount of time. The presenter, you know, has to be very selective about the passages that they would cover because of the limitations of time. But now we don't have those constraints, which is why we're going to spend the rest of July, August, September, and October to talk about just this one week in the life of Jesus. Uh, taking Mark's cue, right? Who spends, uh, you know, uh, 10 chapters talking about three, year, three years, and he takes six chapters to talk about one week. Such is the importance such is the importance. And, and, and we need to do this so that we uncover the deeper significance and the weightiness of this one week. I would add, just uh, kind of as a commercial, if you will, that uh, the first uh, uh, you know, part, of, or, or I should say Sunday school that starts in September is also going to lean into some of the themes in Mark that we have not been able to give enough attention, uh, attention to. And I would really encourage you to already be planning in your kind of mind and in your schedule, your calendar, to be part of the fall Sunday school session, which starts um, the Sunday after Labor Day. So I want to begin, though, with a question that is foundational to our understanding of this week, a week that I do believe, and I've said many times, is the most important week in all of human history. We're going to put the question up on the screen and we'll leave it up there for your consideration. We need to ask, what is being revealed as Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem? What is being revealed as Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem? This question brings to the forefront um, the apocalyptic nature of Mark's gospel. If we are to understand the events of this week, we must understand that God is present in them, that evil is a strong force during this week, and that the incarnate God, Jesus Christ, the one who is the fullness of deity in bodily form, is acting as God's agent against evil and for the good. We need to be firm in our understanding of this. The apocalyptic nature of this gospel at its heart means that God is taking the initiative through Jesus Christ to be that or bring that balm to Gilead to be that great physician that will heal the nation and that will heal ultimately the nation. And, and why Paul is, is so like driven in Corinth to present to them what is critical for a church that is pure and holy because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. So take up the feast, not with leaven, but with, with uh, the leaven of truth and sincerity. And we need to be firm in our understanding that 
Jesus, as God's blessed son, is taking the initiative not just to save individual people, but he is standing in the gap between the dead and the living so as to save the entire cosmos, the whole world, all that has been made. That Jesus stands between the old age and the new age that is now going to dawn in him and bring forth light that will be everlasting and life that will be everlasting. Well, how critical is this? Well, throughout Mark's gospel, we have read and talked about the various kinds of blindness that Mark presents in the gospel. This is Mark's way of telling us that when people misread Jesus, when people misread Jesus, they do so because they are in spiritual darkness. The physical darkness is a way to teach the greater problem of spiritual darkness that encompassed the people of God in Israel, as well as the Gentile nations, and is still the problem in our world today. And not only a deep spiritual blindness and darkness, but also partial blindness, only seeing things partially, which really is the disciples even up to this point. And I think also, in today's context, many people who sit in the church as well, they know a little bit about Jesus, but they really don't understand what Jesus has done, what Jesus has accomplished as Lord and King. This is obviously true of the religious leaders that confront Jesus when they once again ask him about authority. By what authority are you doing these things that you are doing? That's verses 27 and verse number 28. Now, this question of authority actually ties together the gospel for us. All right? And so, go back to Mark 2, and I want to just show you how Mark has presented Jesus as the Son of Man in Mark 2, and he does so with this dramatic healing, you remember, of the paralytic. And, and when, when this guy's friends cut a hole open in the roof, and they drop the paralytic down on the mat from the roof by ropes, which would have been a very dangerous thing to do, right in the middle of this, this crowded room... Uh, what does Jesus say uh, to them in verse number 5? When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, uh, Son, your sins are forgiven. So he sees the faith of this paralytic's friends. He says to the paralytic, not you're healed, but he says your sins are forgiven. Now notice what happens in verse 6. Some of the scribes sitting there questioning their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now Mark makes an editorial comment again. Immediately Jesus, perceiving in the spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. I mean, this is, again, it's one of those no-brainers, right? Which is easier to say to a person with an obvious affliction, whatever that affliction may be? I'll use my wife as an example. Which is easier to say to the, my wife, 
Rhonda, your sins are forgiven. Or Rhonda, throw the walker away. Your foot's completely healed. You don't got to go to physical therapy. Get up, walk, run, whatever you want to do. Well, obviously, it would be easier to say your sins are forgiven because you don't need any proof of that. But in order to show that Jesus has what? Notice, remember what he says in verse number 10? But that you may know that the Son of Man has what? Yes. And where is the authority to be expressed? On earth, he says, forgive, forgive the sins. Right? He says to the paralytic, rise, take up your bed and walk. In other words, if I can tell the guy to get off his mat and walk, I also have the authority to forgive his sins. And Mark reaches back three years prior and pulls this story forward. And of all the things that Mark might have shared in his gospel about the interaction between Jesus and uh, the leadership of the Jews, he shares this thing that reaches again into this question of authority, of authority. And he ties this gospel together by reminding us that Jesus indeed does have the authority. Now, this matter of authority was of massive importance to both the religious leaders and to Jesus. But pay careful attention how Jesus treats the question differently three years previous at the beginning of his ministry than he does now three years later at the end in the temple. In Capernaum, he explains his statement he authenticates it by healing the man. The miracle is a sign of the greater truth that Jesus possesses the authority to forgive sins. But in Jerusalem, he doesn't do that, does he? What does Jesus do in Jerusalem? He sticks his finger right into the eye of their unbelief. And he says to them, you want to know about my authority? Well, I'm going to ask you a question. What about John the Baptist? You know, it's not just don't lie in church, like don't ever go toe-to-toe with Jesus. Right? Just don't, don't. It's not a good idea. Hey, I'll tell you where my authority comes from, but first I want to know something from you. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And to show how deeply lost these men were, these religious leaders of Israel... To show how deeply lost Israel was, Jesus forces the issue. From God or not? And what do the, what do the religious leaders do? Well, we don't know. Well, they did know, didn't they? They did know. You see, in Capernaum, Jesus works with the religious leaders, and he's explaining that for the good of the crowd, but in Jerusalem, three years later, he's like, I'm not answering you guys anymore. I'm walking on. So as Mark brings the questions of authority and forgiveness of sins back to the center of his presentation, Jesus is, or Mark is not going to allow the reader to kind of arrive magically at the meaning of it all on their own. Mark wants you to know that Jesus has authority on earth to forgive sins. And in order to make sure you understand that, he's going to have two signposts that then kind of fill out the rest of the story. Uh, the first one is, is a bit confusing. It's what is 
commonly called the cursing of the fig tree. It's in verses 12 to 14. And the second part of that lesson is in verses 20 uh, to 26. In between is the second signpost, and that is the cleansing of the temple when Jesus drives out the money changers uh, from the temple. Now, I want to just read briefly verses 12 to 14. So Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem. That was last week. He leaves the city. He comes back in. It's the next day. They're coming from Bethany. He's hungry. He sees in the distance a fig tree and leaf. He went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. It was not the season for figs. And he said, uh, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So then they come into Jerusalem. And the more familiar and kind of clearer story that he drives out the money changers. And then he leaves the city, verse 19. He comes back then the next day. There's the fig tree withered away to its root. Peter remembers. He says, Rabbi, look. The fig tree you cursed is withered. And Jesus says, have faith in God. I tell you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. It is not by accident that Mark places the account of the cleansing of the temple in between this two-part lesson of the fig tree. And all of this then to teach us that Jesus has authority on earth to forgive sins. You see, the, the temple uh, was on a hill or a mount, if you will. Um, and it was, of course, within the walls of Jerusalem. And it was the highest point. So when you came into the city, you would have looked up, and if you were going to the temple, you would have ascended up the mount to the temple. That's why those psalms from uh, 120 to like 134 or something are called the Songs of Ascent. You go up the mount singing them to worship God at the temple. But the temple was not only the most visible building, it also would have been uh, the most uh, busy. <laughs> would have just been always filled with activity, especially during this week, which was Passover. Which was Passover. And so when we put these two stories together, what commentators want us to understand, and I think spot on and who am I to disagree is that the fig tree represents Israel the nation who at that point <laughs> should have had fruit they should have had fruit not only historically but especially over the last three years that their Messiah had been present he had been preaching and teaching and doing miracles and working among them but they were not bearing the fruit of belief and then the mountain that Jesus talks about in the second part of the lesson on the fig tree represents then the temple that would have been obvious right in front of him on the mountain. And so in effect what Jesus is saying is that you need to have faith that what God is going to do to the temple, the place that was central to Jewish life, will indeed have a massive impact on the people of Israel who, like the fig tree, are not bearing fruit. And so what is God going to do to the temple? 
Well, we know 70 years from this place, from this time, this moment, the Romans are going to come in and they're going to destroy the temple. Historically, that's a fact. As is the other thing that this points to. Just a few days down the road, Jesus himself is going to die in such a way that redefines the meaning of forgiveness of sins. You no longer have to bring your sacrifice to the temple. You now find your forgiveness in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. And so these two signposts point us to the authority of God in Christ. Where are we going to find forgiveness for our sins? And how is that forgiveness going to be won? This is why it is so important that we get this central theme and lesson about authority so that when Jesus comes into the temple in verse number 15, he begins to drive out those who had sold and bought in the temple and he's overturning the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And what is he teaching to them? In verse 17, he's saying to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. What's the response of the religious leaders? They're seeking for a way to destroy him. They fear him. The crowds are astonished at his teaching. Evening comes and Jesus goes back out of the city. Two things are at stake then as Jesus turns over the tables and cleanses the court of the nation. The first is symbolic and directly related to the fig tree. Again, when Jesus curses the fig tree, he is saying, you, my people, are not ready for my coming. Sure, they welcomed him into the city. Sure, they threw their palm branches on the ground and cried Hosanna in the highest and all of that. But they were not ready to receive him as the king that they needed. They were still looking for the king they wanted. This lack of preparation for them as a nation is made clear by the fact that they had turned the court of the nations there in the temple into what Jesus instead calls a den of thieves. You see, the temple was this massive place. A lot of things are going on in the temple And one of the things that's going on is the opportunity for non-Jews, right, to come and bring their sacrifice so that they too could receive forgiveness of sins. And that area designated in the temple for those non-Jews to come and bring sacrifice is called the court of the Gentiles or the court of the nations. And it was there in that really large, spacious area that the money changers had set up their tables. And it was there that the money changers were cheating their fellow Jews and treating those who would want to uh, come and bring their, their sacrifice. I told you that we're going to take a look at Isaiah, 60, or Isaiah 56. I want you to see it in the context of how this is tied together both in the Old Testament pulling it forward into the life of Jesus and his work in the temple. Isaiah 56, um, if you want to get there in your Bibles and follow along, uh, actually, I think we're going to have it up on the screen, and if it is, uh, you can read it along with me if you'd like. 
Isaiah 56, and we'll begin with uh, verse number, verse number uh, 6. Oh, excuse me, verse number 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name, better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring where? To my holy mountain and make them what? Joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings... And their sacrifices will be accepted where? On my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. What God had envisioned for his people to do for the nations was being corrupted in the very place it was to take, to take place. In a teaching series on Mark's gospel, N.T. Wright brings this point out. When he comments on what the money changers were actually doing there in the court of the nations. You, you see, to receive forgiveness of sins, right, what did you have to bring? You had to bring a lamb that was pure and perfect. But imagine if you lived a far distance and your family is traveling to Jerusalem for Passover. And, and with all of the other things you've got to be concerned about in this caravan, you've got to make sure that the lamb... It remains pure and perfect, unblemished. Well, it would be an impossible thing to do. And so what you would do instead, and especially if you were outside of the lands of uh, Israel, is you would journey to the temple, and there you would purchase a lamb that was pure and perfect, unblemished. If you were a Gentile, you would do that, and then you would be able to offer that. But there in the courtroom, the court of the nations, this large place, the money changers had set up their tables because in order to purchase that lamb, you had to exchange your money into temple currency. And there's a reason for that. I don't got time. We're going to talk about it next week. But you had to change your money into temple currency. And what were the money changers doing? They were looking at people that were sincere in their worship and had a need, and they were saying, well, they really have a need. We're going to charge them a little more. Because they've come all this way, and they're not going to say no. I mean, it would be like, uh, you know, if, if, if my kids still lived in Canada, and I, I was traveling on an emergency up to Montreal because something was wrong, and I stopped in Plattsburgh, and I exchanged my money, and the person in the currency exchange looked at me and said, well, why are you going to Canada? And I go, well, I got a family emergency. You know, I got to go tend to this thing. They said, Oh, your family emergency, well, we're going to charge you an extra 15%. Which I know I'd have to pay. Can you imagine? You, you've traveled such a long distance and you've come and you want to bring 
a, a lamb for sacrifice so that your sins could be forgiven. And in the very place that God has designated for you as a non-Jew to be able to do that, they say, oh, we're going to charge you an extra 15, 20%. Do you want your lamb or not? So Jesus cleanses the temple. The disruption that Jesus causes as he overturns the table may have been symbolic. This didn't have a long-lasting effect, but let's, let's never forget that symbolism always points to reality in the Bible. In taking this action, Jesus shows himself to be the faithful Israelite who is now on the scene. He is going to bring the balm to Gilead. He is going to be the great physician who will not only save his own people, but will save the nations as well. And how will he do this? He will do this by presenting himself as the lamb unblemished, without spot, the pure and perfect lamb of God, the lamb that comes as a gift of grace to any who would receive it by faith. You don't have to buy it. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to impress God with who you are to get it. It is a matter by which you repent of your sins and you turn to Jesus and you receive him, the pure and perfect lamb of God. So the symbolism of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple point to this greater reality that the forgiveness of sins no longer going to be found in the, in the temple. That mountain is going to be cast into the sea, as it were. But instead, the forgiveness of sins is going to come now through the pure and perfect Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who has been given authority not only to announce forgiveness for sins, but ultimately win forgiveness for sins. This is what is being revealed as Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem. And Mark's question to us today is no question, different than the question that he would have asked the first readers, and that is, have you followed the signposts that actually are leading to Jesus? Have you received forgiveness for your sins? The hymn we sang, Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, right? Is that how you're coming to God as a sinner today? Have you followed the signposts that lead to Jesus or are you still uncertain? Do you have some uncertainty? Be, what does it mean what Jesus did and all of this during this most important week of human history? Have you learned, have you understood, are you giving yourself to Jesus in such a way that you trust him, you trust him alone, nothing else for the forgiveness of sins? You know, I think we all right now, in the times in which we live, can feel the weight of it. These are such needy times. I was, I was reflecting on it, and, and what came to mind was uh, back in the, in the 70s during the Carter presidency, you know, they had the misery index. Some of us are old enough over there, they had the misery index. And life was pretty miserable, right? Those long lines waiting for your little ration of gasoline, right? It was a horrible time. We have a similar time we're living in today. Rising inflation, the threat of global war, the destruction of lives through philosophies that are just, just decimating morality and and, and decimating children. I mean, what is being fed into the minds of children just leading to their destruction. And all of this is going on within our nation. And we feel the weight of this. 
Well, what's the response of the church to be? And I think Mark has, has, tell, has told us. When the, when the church asks the question, how then shall we live? The answer for the church is say, well, we're going to live with confidence because the Jesus that is presented here in Mark 11 is the Jesus who is enthroned today, the one who has provided forgiveness for our sins, the one who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, which is why we can say that the future is indeed Jesus Christ. You see, it is through Jesus that the curse has been broken. It is in Jesus that the new creation is dawning. So we can rejoice. We can be glad. Come, people of the risen King who delight to sing his praise. We can do that because of what Jesus has accomplished. All of it rooted in the victory of Jesus. Which then the challenge is what? Take up his cause. Let his life flow through your life. You see, the, the curse has been dealt with. We've been cleansed from our sin. The challenge then to see Jesus as the one who has won complete victory, who is going to come, he is going to put an end to sin and death and the devil and the kingdom of God revealed in all of its completeness. And he will judge the living and the dead. He will judge the living and the dead. So this is what begins to happen in Jerusalem. Let it, let it shape your life. Let it help lead you forward in, in these weighty, difficult, challenging times. And I pray, as I have been praying and I am going to continue to pray, that our faithfulness as a church community will grow. And it will grow especially in these coming months as we delve deeply into the meaning of this week. That there will be a, a rising up in the Durkee Town St. James congregation. Faithfulness to the house of the Lord that we might give ourselves to the teaching of God's word as much as we can. So that we are shaped by this great truth that Jesus has all authority. The authority to forgive your sins, my sins. And the authority to do that on earth in the very lives that we live. Father, I give you thanks for your word to us today. May our hearts, O oh God, be encouraged by it. Father, I pray that as we reflect on the meaning of what Christ has accomplished, that we would do so ready then to receive forgiveness for all of our sins. But especially, O oh Lord, to realize that past forgiveness is an invitation into fellowship that we are brought into the love of God through Jesus Christ, which gives us all of the space we need to experience your love and, of course, to love one another in community. And this I pray in Jesus' good name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeetown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeetown, please visit our website at www.durkeetown.org.